dark inside the mystery. See the empty cross. See the risen Savior. Victorious and strong. No one else above him. None is strong to save.
close to your side so heaven is real and death is a lie i want to hear voices of angels above singing as one
we are glad you guys are here with us this morning to be able to worship this God Almighty, the great I Am. Our passage today for our message is in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And, and if you don't uh, know this passage, Isaiah has this vision of God seated on the throne. And the temple is filled with the train of his robe. And smoke fills the temple. And God's glory fills the temple. And the, the seraphim themselves are covering their eyes. And they're covering their feet. And they're flying with the third pair of wings. And Isaiah, in all of this view sees the grandness and the greatness of God and he, and he looks at himself and he says, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. And that we could st even stand before God. The song that we just sang, no one can stand. Nothing can stand before the great I am. Unless he gives us a way to do that. And we saw, and we're going to see that a seraphim, an angel, comes and touches Isaiah's lips with a coal and says, you're clean. And we have Christ, the one who bore our sin and our shame on the cross so that he could look at us and say, you are clean. So that we tremble in God's presence and his holiness. And we stand in his grace and his mercy and his love. Amen. We've sang about the grandness of God. Let's sing about the goodness of our Savior.
perfectly through your son, Jesus. Lord, that we can behold your glory and not be consumed because we are covered already by Jesus Christ and his blood shed for us on the cross. Would you remind us this morning of your grace so evident, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, because everything, everything in your word points us to Christ and our desperate need for him and the great gift that you've given to us in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. One thing I love about Sunday mornings is to be in the front row and to, to uh, declare that truth alongside you in song. Uh, we want to welcome you. Glad that you're here. Some family news with you to share with you. Congratulations to Jonathan and Daniel Hosteller, who are expecting their third child. Uh, we're excited for them. They're expecting on February 11th of this next year. And then also this past Friday, the householders, Aaron and Ashley, welcomed home their twin boys, Rhett Joseph and Brooks Isaac. Uh, Rhett weighed in at 5 pounds, 1 ounce, and 19 inches long. Brooks weighed in at 5 pounds, 15 ounces, and 19 and a half inches long. And Ashley has a gold medal around her neck. And Aaron does too, but Ashley especially. Um, so we rejoice with them at God's goodness and his provision in their life and um, just grateful for that. First impression team, you want to be begin passing out the connection cards. Uh, we want to uh, have every household, whether you're a first-time guest or been here for 13 years, fill that out. Uh, that will help us get to know you and uh, prayer requests that we can be praying for and next steps that you want to take and those kind of things. One of the next steps, one of the things that we would love to see is every household connected to community groups, to not just be in rows this uh, on Sunday mornings, but to be in circles with one another uh, around the Word of God, praying for one another, uh, believers in Christ gathering together. And so Pastor Eric's going to share a little bit about community groups coming up. Hello. So last week I, I told you about community groups and the need to join them, and then I committed a pastor um, party foul and forgot to give you application for that. 
so if you go on our website, crosspointcc.org, uh, under what we do, there's a 3D community groups webpage um, that you can see all the listings of the, of the current community groups that we have. There's about 10 of them. We have groups that meet every day of the week except for Mondays and Thursdays right now. So uh, if you are interested in, in leading a group, please see me afterward and we can talk about that. Um, Mondays and Thursdays are still open. There's a men's group that meets on Saturday mornings. There's a women's group that's going to be starting up in October. Uh, on the 7th, here at Crosspoint, uh, we have groups in Secor, in um, Eureka, in Goodfield. So there are lots of options to choose from. And again, those classes are going to start up next uh, Sunday night. Uh, and so those, I believe, there's an insert in your program still about that. So we need community. This is fantastic to come and to sit and declare together um, the glory of God and the goodness of Christ and the salvation that we have received through him. But I don't know if you notice or not, you see a lot of the backs of people's heads. When we gather in groups, we see each other's faces and we get in each other's lives. And uh, it's, it's one thing to encourage and exhort one another on a Sunday morning to uh, remember these truths, but it's another thing to live those out throughout the week together. So join a community group. My contact information is on the back of your program if you have any questions about that or you can see me afterwards, but uh, it is vital to our lives in Christ that we live our lives in Christ together every day of the week, not just Sunday mornings. Amen? Amen. All right, uh, another mission project or another thing coming up this fall is uh, Operation Christmas Child. It's a mission project that we love around here, and so watch this video to tell you a little bit more. Playing, are laughing, joyful. It's like a whole world to them. Because for the first time, they have received this precious gift. The message through the box is not only the toys that makes them smile. The message here is that Jesus loves them. You've got an army of volunteers that pack the boxes. They're helping OCC to take the gospel literally to millions of children. We are opening doors for other churches and other parts of the world to do ministry in their local community. They receive a box and also an invitation to come back and learn more about Christ. We just don't want to just hand out a box and stop there. We want them to grow in their faith. So it started with a box, and it's ending with communities and countries being changed. ceases to amaze me how a simple box can change the world for a child. Thousands will be impacted by just one gift. So there are five Sundays in October, and so those five Sundays we're going to be gathering 
uh, a lot of different supplies. You'll start to see uh, communication and details this coming week as far as what to gather because those five Sundays we're going to gather and bring them in. And then on November 6th, Sun Chasers will be packing up those boxes. The 13th, we'll be praying over and sending those boxes out. And so uh, thank you for joining us in that mission project. If you have a Bible on your uh, device or on your lap, turn to Isaiah 6. That's where we'll be this morning. Earlier this month as a church, we moved into year two of a three-year chronological journey through Scripture on Sunday mornings. In the course of history this fall, all these stories land between 863 B.C. and 585 B.C. So about 278 years we're covering in 12 Sundays. So we won't be hitting everything. We're going to be hitting the highlights, doing a quick flyover, so to speak, of the rest of the Old Testament as we approach March of next year where we hit the New Testament. Praise God. Um, so we'll be there through, um, no, I'm, I'm enjoying this, but uh, I'm looking forward to Jesus. Um, so uh, March of 2017 through August of 2018 will be in the Gospels and in the New Testament. This fall, we're catch, catching some uh, significant moments in the Old Testament over the course of these 270 plus years. Today and next, next Sunday, we're looking at a couple key texts from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was another Old Testament prophet that God used to, to turn people back to the Lord, to call out sin, to preach repentance, to lead people back to the Lord. And the book of Isaiah, so a much of it points forward to Jesus. We'll see that today. We'll see that next week as we're at the lake, at the lake next week, service, lunch, invite a friend. Don't forget, don't come here. We'll be there, all right? But Psalm 910 says this, And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. As your pastor, that, that verse captures one of the hopes I have for us as a people, that we would be a people who would know the Lord. Not just know about Him, but know Him personally, in relationship. That we'd know His nature, His character, and the name of our God as revealed to us in the Scriptures. And the more we'd know Him, the more we'd trust in Him. Because the closer we'd get to Him, the more we'd want to trust in Him, the more we'd go, why would I trust in anything or anyone other than Him? And as a group of believers in and worshipers of God, that we take joy and rest and strength and delight and assurance in the truth that our God has never forsaken those who seek Him. That our God is too good, too loving, too faithful to do anything but. And those who know your name put their trust in you, for you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. And every Sunday... When we open up our Bibles, let alone when you and I open up our Bibles during the week, we've got this opportunity to get to know the name of our God better. Because if we want to know who He is, we, we go here. We go to the Scriptures. We don't go to church tradition. We don't go to our backgrounds. We don't go to, well, that, that person says. No, we go to the source. We go to God's Word to reveal to us who our God is. And today in Isaiah 6, we'll get to know our God better and this text in chapter 6, it should make us uncomfortable. It should make us uncomfortable. It definitely made Isaiah uncomfortable. His response in getting to know God better was, was this, Woe to me. I am wrecked. I am undone. I am disrupted. And I pray that we would have a similar response as we look at this text. And it would lead us ultimately to trust in Him more. As, as Psalm 910 says. 
I think it's an easy temptation for us to have a casual view of God. And as a result, we are tempted to, to take sin lightly. We are tempted to be flippant about when our sin gets exposed, being like, eh, no big deal. We, we might even imagine God as this grandfather figure in a rocking chair kind of turning his head to his grandkids when they mess up or, or just patting them on their head or slipping them a butterscotch and say, ah, it's, it's okay, no big deal. Trevin Wax, the general editor of the Gospel Project series, says this, it's not that we have a low view of ourselves, it's that we have too low a view of our God. I talk about this often, but I believe humans are notoriously trying to make God out in our image. We're trying to make an image of God who suits us, who we are comfortable, comfortable with, who, who never disrupts us, who never causes us to change, who never says, who, who never commands us to do this or, or go there or relinquish this, let go of this. Or at minimum, we are trying to make a God out in our image that would cause someone else to change, but just not us. Like, yeah, you command them to change, but, but me, no, uh, skip over me somehow. Or we pick the attributes of God that we are inclined to that fit our personality types, but we disregard the rest. But rather, what we see is God is the great I am. We, we sang about this. He tells Moses, when Moses asks, who should, who should I say that has sent me? And God says, I am who I am. I won't be boxed into one attribute. And there is none like me. He simply is. He is eternal. He's the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. He is beyond time and space. And so he is truth and he is grace and he is just and he is mercy and he is unapproachable in his, ho in his holiness and glory so much so that if we truly got a full glimpse of it, we would be consumed. And yet he is near and he is present through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So today in Isaiah 6, I pray the character of our God is displayed, that, that gets displayed, it disrupts us as it did Isaiah. And as a result, that we'd be changed. As a result, we'd trust in our God that much more as Psalm 9:10 calls us to. Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, he was the king of Judah, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah describes the Lord as high and exalted elsewhere in, in uh, chapter 52, verse 13. Chapter 57, verse 15. High and exalted. This is not a low view of God here. This is a high view. This is not a casual, flippant view. It is you're exalted, you're lifted up, you're majestic, you're perfect, you're holy, you're flawless, you're in authority. The robe refers to the splendor of the Lord, His brilliance, the grandness of our God. Seraphim, what are these? Well, they're nothing like you and I have ever seen. They are fiery, angelic beings. So in our world, We've reduced angels to chubby babies who play harps and shoot arrows, all right? Chubby babies that become ceramic figures or somehow make it to the front of a big coffee table Bible, all right? How in the world they ever get there, I don't know. But the seraphim here in Isaiah 6, these are not chubby, cute babies playing harps. These are fiery, angelic beings. 
In verse 4, you see that by their voices, the foundations of the temple shake. And you'll notice that even they, they cover themselves before an all-holy God. And they're above humans. They're not stained by sin. And yet even they, they are not high and exalted. They're not the highest. They are lower. And so in humility, they cover their eyes. They cover their faces because they revere their maker. They've been created. They're not creator. And so they're not ultimate. Creator is ultimate. And they revere themselves. They humble themselves before the Lord. And and this is what they cry, holy, holy, holy. Maybe for some of you, you want to just break out in song right now as you hear those words. With each time they cry holy, the intensity grows. Again, this is not a casual, dismissive view of God. So what's the holiness of God? It is His absolute moral purity. To be holy is to be separated from the common. God is in a class by Himself. He is one of a kind. 1 Samuel 2.2 says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Isaiah 40 Verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. So he is incomparable. John Piper says this, his holiness is his utterly unique divine essence. It determines all that he is and does and is determined by no one. His holiness is what he is as God, which no one else is or ever will be. Call it his majesty, his divinity, his greatness, his value as the pearl of great price, In the end, language runs out. In the word holy, we have sailed to the world's end, to the utter silence of reverence and wonder and awe. There may be, there may yet be more to know of God, but that will be beyond words. I love the, in the end, language runs out. Because I have this challenge this morning, trying to articulate in words something that can't be completely articulated. Trying to give us a picture that's really tough to grasp this side of heaven with limited minds in a fallen world. A.W. Tozer said this in his his book, Knowledge of the Holy. I have uh, like five Tozer quotes today, so just be prepared, all right? But they're so good. And his language, frankly, will run us further than my language would. And so that's why I want to refer us to these quotes. But Tozer writes this, God's holiness is not simply the best we know infinitely infinitely bettered, we know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Again, one of my hopes for us today is that we'd be disrupted from our casual or indifferent views of God. As a church, I never want us to miss the significance, for instance, that it is that when we gather, we have this opportunity to sing to a God who is unique and divine in His holiness, that He is holy, 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 that He is set apart, that He is without compare, that He is in a whole other category which makes him worthy of worship. I mean, could we just admit that we, as we look at this passage, that we can't fully get our heads and our hearts around the holiness and the glory of God? As Tozer said, that we can't 
We can't fully imagine such awe-striking perfection and holiness. But all that does for me, maybe I'm too simplistic, but all that does for my heart is remind me that He is God and I am not. That He is worthy of worship and I am not. That He is different than us. That in us we've been made in His image and not the other way around. I want us to grow in our knowledge of God through the Word and the more that we do, the more we know His name and the more we trust in and worship the Lord. Tozer also said this, to be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. Because he is holy, his attributes are holy, that is, whatever we think of as belonging to God must be thought of as holy. He is the standard. All that he is and all that he does is holy and pure and perfect and flawless. And that truth will shake Isaiah to the core. I pray it does for us as well. Verse 4, at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. To the vision of God's perfect holiness, all Isaiah can cry is, Woe to me. I am ruined. I am sinful. Isaiah's a prophet. He's, he's been called to speak the truth and call out sin in the people, call them to repent. So then compared to the holiness of God, he's just as unholy as the people who he is living among. His, his own sin is exposed here. He doesn't just say his people are unclean, but my own lips are unclean compared to your holiness. He's undone. He's wrecked. He's not the same. And yet this is Isaiah. He's a prophet of God. When compared to the people, you might think, well, he's holier than they are. I mean, come on. He's been called out for this. But when compared to the infinite, incomprehensible purity of God, he is ruined. He's ruined. He's been laid bare. When compared to the holiness of our God, no one measures up. Moses didn't. David didn't. Isaiah doesn't hear. Because we've all fallen short. So the holiness of God exposes both the religious, self-righteous person who thinks they've, they're earning their, their salvation because they've dressed up the outside, because they're obeying in certain areas really well. It exposes that person as having fallen short. And it also exposes the person that goes, God doesn't care about me. I can just live my life and he'll be more concerned about other people. I'll just kind of lay over here and, and he'll skip over me and uh, it doesn't really matter. It exposes that person that, could, that says, I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. And it exposes this person, this, the religious self-righteous that says, by my works, God has accepted me. Wherever we land on that spectrum, we've all fallen short of his holiness. Compared to His holiness, we cry, Woe to me, I am ruined. Tozer wrote this, The sudden realization of His personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah at the moment when he had his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God. His pain-filled cry of woe to me expresses the feeling of every man who has discovered himself under his disguises 
and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. Such an experience cannot but be emotionally violent. I pray that you and I are confronted with our sinfulness today. For those of you who don't know Christ yet as Savior, I pray the Spirit would expose your sin so that you trust in Him alone for your forgiveness. And then you'd turn to walk in obedience to Him. You'd agree with Him and no longer disagree with Him. For those of us who are Christ followers this morning, I pray the Spirit would expose the sin in us. Because it's a really easy temptation for Christ followers to say, I got saved and then, or I got saved back then, whatever. And then to allow this ever-widening gap to grow and grow and grow between what we say we believe and how we actually live, how we actually think. To allow secret sin to begin to consume and entangle us all the while we keep telling people, oh, I'm doing good, doing great. How's life? No, it's good. It's good. All the while, our heart is growing cold, entangled, embittered, consumed. Tozer said this, Until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over, over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. Where have you learned to live with unholiness in your life? Where have you been prone to, to write it off as a natural, expected thing or to justify it as freedom in Christ or to try to hide it to preserve your pride? Isaiah is seeing himself as God sees him here. And I pray we do as well, that, that we'll be disturbed and disrupted from our sin condition to the point of change, to the point of where we'd begin walking in the light, because in the light is found freedom. In the light is found joy and forgiveness and delight and salvation. Where have you learned to live with unholiness in your life? Where have you settled for, well, this is just the way it's going to be? Is, this, is it an ongoing pattern of unbelief? Is it rage and anger? Is it hating another? Specifically, maybe even in, in the family of God? Is it sexual sin outside of a covenant marriage relationship between a husband and wife? Is it a lack of Christ-like love for those who annoy and irritate you? Is it the use of a substance or food that you keep running to to try to medicate yourself and, and numb the pain? Is it lust of the eyes causing you to go, I'm just not content with any of this. I need more. I need more. My wife and I are currently going through a marriage study and in this past week, one of the exercises or action steps we did was to share five sins, that, that five ways, five sins that we've committed toward one another, to share those, confess those with one another. And I'm grateful that as we shared those, that Heather's five were far more, far worse than mine. I mean, they were like, <laughs> brutal. It's a good thing I'm up here and she's there. Man, 
Only one person, yeah. I mean, terrible. Um, so, you know, um, what I was grateful for, besides that, um, no, what I was grateful for was that all 10 of the things that we shared were things we'd shared before. Now, some needed to be brought back to the surface. Some needed to be bubbled up to the top that had uh, sunk down and pushed under a rug. Um, but I was grateful to be able to share that and to confess that. And here's the thing. Confessing your sin to another person is humbling. It is, uh, it's good for the soul. It's, uh, that's how we walk in the light. James 5.16 says this, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I want us to be a people who confess to the Lord, who believe on the promise of 1 John 1, that in Christ, when we, when we confess, when we became Christ followers, that He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness or the defilement of our sin. I also want us to be a people who confess to one another. That if we're married, that we confess to our spouse. That whether we're married or not, whatever our marital status is, that we confess to one another in the body of Christ, in the family of God. That we believe the truth of James 5.16, that when we do, it gives us this opportunity to pray for one another and also gives us an opportunity for healing, for freedom. Now that's uncomfortable, is it not? But Scripture is going to cause us to be uncomfortable for the sake of Christ, for the sake of our own growth in Christ. He loves you and I enough to make us uncomfortable, to call us to be uncomfortable. See, some of us, we get into a community group and go, oh, I don't know if I could do that. It's what the family of God does. It's what the family of God should be doing. Where have you learned to live with unholiness in your life? See, Isaiah is not justifying anything in this chapter. He's laid bare, and I pray we are as well. I pray we would not be a people who would look at the grace of God and, and see it as a license to be content with ongoing unholiness in our lives. Paul talks about this in Romans 6. Just the first four verses, he writes this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And this new life in, in Christ is no longer a slave to sin. This new life in Christ is, is set free from sin. This new life in Christ is no longer mastered by sin. This new life in Christ is no longer allows sin to reign and rule in our hearts and in our lives. This new life in Christ offers Causes, causes us, commands us to offer ourselves as instruments of righteousness. All because of grace. I love how the, the picture of baptism illustrates that. That we've been buried, that our old way has been put to death, and we've been raised to walk in obedience to Him, raised to reflect Him to the world around us. Isaiah begins with, I have seen the Lord. So what has he seen as, as we look at this passage? Well, he's seen that God is alive that an earthly king, Uzziah, died. 
but the God of all gods, the King of kings, is alive. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God is alive. Isaiah has also seen that God is in authority. He is on his throne. He's not fighting for authority here. There's not, a, there's not a coup. There's not a rebellion to try to get authority. He is in authority. He has it. He's in control. There's no greater judge than he. Isaiah has seen the Lord high and lifted up. His throne is higher than all other thrones. His counsel and judgments and rule will stand. Isaiah has seen the seraphim even worship God. How much more should we who are stained by sin How much more should we revere Him and lift Him high and exalt Him and come under Him if seraphim are doing it? And this vision that Isaiah has seen has caused him to cry, Woe to me! I am unclean. He knows that he is just as short of God's perfection as the nation who he is called to be a prophet to. Now, if we stop there, If we are under law at this point, then we just leave it at that. We would pray, we'd walk away, and feel like garbage. We'd feel unworthy, don't measure up, unholy, ruined. And what we'd be tempted to do is to try to go out and clean up ourselves. We'd be tempted to try to do these things better, never addressing this or addressing this, but then pride puffing up, or but we're under grace. And so the Lord wants to expose the sin in us because He loves us. He wants us to see how we, apart from Christ, are unclean compared to His absolute purity and holiness of Himself. And then, then He gives us the next couple verses so that we might know that in Him we can find salvation that we might be reminded of the grace of God, the cross of Christ. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Our God is infinitely holy and he is infinitely good. Tozer compares the wrath of God towards sin, his, his hatred toward sin as the mom who hates polio, who kills her child. Because we know from scriptures that the result of sin is death. So the father hates to see his creation fall to the deadly effects of sin. So an infinitely holy God will have judgment over sin. And that sin will separate us from him. But faith in Christ changes that. Apart from Christ, we are objects of God's wrath, according to Ephesians 2. And yet, because he is rich in mercy and grace, as Ephesians 2 tells us, that he has made a way possible to find salvation from that judgment, freedom from sin. Isaiah is touched by a burning ember to his lips, which reminds us that we have been made pure by a work outside of us. It's beyond Isaiah here. So Isaiah wasn't, woe to me, and then go clean himself up. It was woe to me and God pursuing him, touching his lips with this ember. And notice that pain leads to purity. Pain leads to purity. And that reminds us that the pain of the cross leads to the purity 
of those who trust in the cross. In Christ, our sin has been atoned for and covered. The guilt has been taken away. If we've repented and believed the good news, in Christ, we've been purified. 1 John 2.2 tells us that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds we have been, or you have been, healed. So his pain leads to our purity. And that is good news. That's, that's a scandalous good news right there. That his pain could lead to your and mine purity. That he would undergo pain so that we would find purity. Notice that the remedy to, to uh, Isaiah's sin, to atone for it, is immediate. It is sufficient. It is enough. The seraphim didn't say, hey, come back in a week. Okay, well, we're going to keep addressing this. We're going to keep working through this. Okay, get on the couch. We're going to keep working through this. No, he says, in a sense, it is finished. It's enough. Guilt has been taken away. The sin is atoned for. How can an infinitely holy God establish a relationship with an unholy people like you and me? It's only through the covering of sin in our lives and only through a perfect holy sacrifice would be acceptable enough to cover our sin. Much like the seraphim flew to Isaiah, so God's grace has pursued us. God's grace went before us in the sending of a son to be the sacrifice, to bear the wrath of God on the cross, to take upon that sin, die for it, but then prove he was he was not just a man, but he was the God-man and rise again on the third day. God's grace is relentless. He is pursuing you. He is reminding us here of his holiness and our unholiness. He's exposing that in us so that we might repent and believe the good news, good news that Jesus came for sinners. He came to seek and save that which is lost. He came for those who admitted their sin sickness and not just those that thought, I'm fine. Then verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for me? And I said, Here am I, send me. So God is commissioning or calling out Isaiah here as a prophet. And Isaiah readily answers with, Yes, here am I, send me. But notice the one thing in this progression of these verses, humility always precedes mission. Just like pain leads to purity, humility always leads, always precedes mission. You want to be used of God? Do we want to be used of God as a, as a church, as a body of Christ? Then we need to humble ourselves before God. Isaiah cried, woe to me, before he raised his hand and said, here am I. Notice the pr progression. We don't get to here am I without woe to me first. As one commentary said, we become emotionally and spiritually able to address the needs of others only after we come to recognize and confess our own great need and dependence upon God. So we've been liberated and set free from sin. We've been washed clean so that our lips might then be able to testify personally of His goodness and His grace. Isaiah's guilt and sin were atoned for before he went out and called others to the Lord. Humility before the Lord always precedes mission for the Lord. And the more we know the name of the Lord, the more we will not only trust in him, but the more we will be compelled to go and share the good news of Jesus with those around us. If the worship team wants to come back up.
as we moved into this new year of ministry, our 14th as a church, we've been talking about prayerfulness a lot. And so to finish this morning, before we sing, before we give our offerings, I want us to consider the first line of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. The disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. In Matthew 6, 9, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hype looked at this prayer, at the Lord's Prayer last couple Wednesdays. But this is a request that Jesus is making here. Hallowed, meaning that God would be treated with the highest honor. That we would set him apart as holy. That his name would be treated as holy. The seraphim cried out, holy, holy, holy. Jesus is teaching the disciples and teaching us that we are to treat the Lord as holy. That we would revere him. And notice that he begins the Lord's Prayer with, Our Father in heaven. So yes, hallowed be your name, but our God is not far off. He's not distant. If we are in Christ, He is a good Father, a Father who loves, a Father who disciplines, a Father who cares for, a Father who comforts, a Father who finishes what He begins. And so we come near to Him because of Jesus, and yet at the same time we hallow His name. We recognize His holiness and His glory. So, for the next minute or two, before we stand and sing, before we give our offerings, I want to create space for us to to pray to our Father in heaven, hallowed be His name. To worship the Lord for His holiness, to confess our sinfulness, to thank Him that in Christ our sin is covered, to worship Him for loving us enough to make a way possible for that to happen that we as a people would hollow his name and approach him as father this week in prayer. So let's pray at our seats quietly as the Spirit leads us, and then we'll respond. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Father, thank you for that truth. As a church family, we confess that you have a lot of work yet to do in our hearts. A lot of work yet to do in our lives. We're grateful for your truth. We're grateful that you are faithful to finish what you have begun. 
we're grateful for the truth of the cross that it is finished. Thank you that Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. As a church, we want to have a high view of you. We want to see you high and exalted and lifted up. We want to worship you well, not only in this service, but as a way of life. Teach us to do that, Lord. Spirit, lead us this week. As we sing and as we give our offering, God, would you be exalted? Would you be lifted up? Would you be praised and worshipped? Thank you that we can come boldly before you, before your throne, because of Christ. So we give in response to how good you've been to us, how good you continue to be to us. And we love you, we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up and give and sing and worship.
as a church, that is our prayer that you would use us. Collectively, as a church, we raise our hands and say, here we are, Lord, use us. Transform us, change us, make us more like your Son. Thank you that it's by grace, it's through faith. Thank you for your relentless love for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few things. Uh, Discover Crosspoint, our first uh, gathering is tonight. Sign up in the back uh, from 6 to 8. Uh, we'll be here and um, talking about, talk about membership and talking about the body of Christ, the family of God. would love for you to sign up for that. And then next Sunday, we are at the lake. So bring some food, a dessert, and a side, some lawn chairs, a friend, and we'll gather out there at 10 o'clock, and it should be an awesome day together. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless. Have a great week.